Well, for more than 400 years, religiously speaking, everything in Israel was just about the exact same. Because as the book of Malachi comes to an end, God makes a promise to his people, and he mentions a person who he refers to as Elijah, who's going to arrive just before the day of the Lord comes. Now, a lot of people had thought that Elijah, as it is referred to there in Malachi, is going to be the Messiah. As you and I obviously know, this is in reference to John the Baptist. And after more than 400 years of there being no prophetic voice in all of Israel, all of a sudden, sure enough, one day, there is a brand new prophet who burst onto the scene. And he is just as eccentric as Elijah was in 1 Kings. He's even dressing exactly as Elijah dressed, wearing camel's hair, eating wild honey. And what I love about John the Baptist is just as his ancestors couldn't wait to get out of the wilderness and to rush into the promised land, we find John the Baptist who just couldn't wait to get out of the promised land and to venture as far deep into that very same wilderness as he could possibly go. In fact, John even lived there for a long duration of time. And isn't it ironic as all these people flock to hear John the Baptizer speak about Jesus, that they are leaving all of their comforts in the promised land far behind, and they are venturing deep into the very same wilderness, into this barren wasteland of crags and, and smoldering hot air in the desert. And as John begins speaking about Jesus, about how one far greater than I is just about to burst onto the scene, it says that these people are absolutely mesmerized at the power in which John speaks with. And yet as we arrive at our text here in Luke chapter um, 7 of Luke, Luke chapter 7, John is sitting in a place and all of that seems like a very long life ago now. And that's because he is now in prison. Jesus has just healed a centurion's servant. He's even risen a person back from the grave. And in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 16, it says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and, and all the surrounding country. It says the disciples of John reported all of these things to John, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. And then John asked a very big question, where it says, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And that is such a big question that John is asking here. Now, we might react to this and say, Why is John the Baptist asking Jesus a question like that? Now, a while back, I actually had asked a question of that nature in a Bible class, and, and what had come in um, a response to this in that class was, well, 
John is just wanting his disciples to have this reinforced in their own minds and in their own faith, because clearly John the Baptist would, would never ask Jesus a question like this for himself. And yet if we look very closely at this text, though, what we notice is that John's disciples are the ones who are on the outside, who are right in the thick of all of this hysteria as it unfolds surrounding Jesus. And yet John the Baptist is the one who is locked on the inside, who just like you and I is not witnessing any of these miracles with his own eyes that are relayed to him in his prison cell. You see, I believe that John is asking this particular question of Jesus because John, at least in this moment in time, isn't so sure if Jesus actually is the Messiah anymore. And as we see John in a moment of, I mean, strong doubts with regards to the Lordship of Christ, we, we can't help but wonder, I mean, what has happened to John the Baptist here? I mean, this was an absolutely courageous messenger who had no ounce of fear whatsoever. In fact, the reason why he is in prison at this moment in time is because he is not a minister. He is not a church preacher. This guy is a prophet. Prophets were professional truth-tellers who were not afraid to name names, and he just named the largest name that there was, where he calls out even their own king and says that you are living with your own brother's wife, and he gets thrown into prison because of that. And yet this is the exact same John the Baptist who, before he was even born, as his mother hears from Mary that, that she has conceived Jesus Christ, it says John in his mother's womb leaps for joy. This is the exact same John who, who baptized Jesus Christ himself. John saw the Spirit as it descended upon Jesus. John heard the audible voice of God resounding from the heavens, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the exact same John the Baptist who says in John chapter 1, as he stands at the Jordan River, teaching and, and immersing people, he sees Jesus quickly approaching, and he announces to all the people who were there at the banks of the Jordan River, look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he even goes on and he elaborates and he says that, that I have seen and I have borne witness and testimony that this is the Son of God. And yet just eight weeks later, or perhaps six months later, whatever it was, it was a very short duration of time. The very same John now has just gone from saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to asking Jesus through his disciples, yeah, but are you the Son of God? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life really? Because perhaps I have made some kind of a mistake here. And I mean, it just blows our minds of, of all the people who would have absolutely known this is the Son of God, it would have been John. And so, I mean, how could a guy like that ever have one ounce of doubt within him concerning Christ? And you know, my only true answer to that question is, 
is, I mean, a lot can change in five weeks. A lot can change in six months. I mean, look at our country. A lot can change in just three or four months. I mean, other times a lot can, can even change in just one moment in our lives as it unfolds before our very eyes. I mean, what if John really was not the superhero that we make him out to be sometimes? What if John isn't running around in, in tights and in a cape and riding magical unicorns into the sky? What if John is just as human, just as imperfect in his understanding of God's grand master plan, and just as susceptible to occasional doubt as you are and as I am from time to time? Well, I want you to know that if you are struggling in doubt this morning, I'm not bringing all of this up so that I can shame you, guilt trip you, rub anybody's face in the mud. But rather, I bring all of this up in order to let you know, as well as let me myself know, that when we do undergo doubt, we are never, ever alone in, in that doubt. Rather, we are in legendary company where we look to Abraham as the father of those who were faithful, where he announces to Abraham, I mean, just, just on the spurt of the moment, I want you to leave your, your country, leave your family, and leave your house, and just start walking to a place where I'm not even going to explain where it is or what it's called. And the guy just gets up and he goes without asking any questions. A little bit later on, he has waited his, his whole entire life for a son. God says, now I want you to take this son that you've waited your, your whole entire life for. Go and slit his throat. And I mean, the guy just wakes up that morning and he goes and he is prepared to do just exactly that. And yet we do remember one instance, though, where, where one year before his son had been born, God says, to a 99-year-old Abraham, hey, next year you're going to be holding your, your um, son in your, your arms. And as all of us, I imagine, would, would have reacted to that, Abraham just, you know, he throws his head back and he, and he guffaws with laughter. God, that is the funniest joke I've ever heard. I want to hear another joke about the three rabbis who walked into a bar one day. I mean, Abraham had his doubts too, just like us. I think about the apostles who were the eyewitnesses of the entire ministry of Jesus upon the earth, who actually reached out and who touched it, who actually saw with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus. And yet we also know that in that morning that he did rise from the grave, and it's so unfair that we only designate one person as the doubter in all of human history is, is who? It's doubting Thomas. Where he said that unless I... I see with my own eyes those nail scars in his hands. And until I reach out and I actually lay hold of those scars, I'm not going to believe a word that anybody has to say about his resurrection. And yet we also know that it wasn't just him, but it was also all of the apostles initially, as, as the women enter into the upper room and say that, that Jesus Christ is risen. And an angel said that, that he's on his way once again in, here into the city. It says that in that moment, they, they are so heartbroken that it sounded as nonsense to every single one of them. 
Even the apostles had doubts, just like we have doubts sometimes. And many years ago, there had been a person who had died, and they uncovered a diary that they had kept while they lived. And on one of the pages, it was especially striking because what they had written in their diary were these words. How in my soul, I only feel the terrible pain of loss. I only feel God not wanting me. I only feel God not being God and of God not really existing. And the person who wrote that diary entry was Mother Teresa. I mean, who answered God's call to visit orphans more than Mother Teresa? Won the Nobel Peace Prize answering God's invitation to do just that. And yet even that giantess in the faith also underwent her own doubts many times throughout her life. My question for us this morning is, if Father Abraham, if John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus, if even his apostles wrestled with doubt thousands of years ago as all of these things happened before their eyes, if we are very honest with ourselves, if we are not among those kind of individuals in the church who, who do not pretend as if we've got this thing all completely under control and mastered, then we too will also experience and we will undergo this blood sport of having our own doubts. And there's a writer whose name is Elizabeth Gilbert, and I love what she says about fear. Where she says how, how we have built inside of us as human beings this instinct of fear that is very vital to us. If we sense that we are in any element of danger, there are emotional alarms going off all, all around us that, that I need to get away from this atmosphere here. And yet what she says is, as it regards to our, our fears, that she uses a metaphor of going for, for a car ride. And what she writes is that where we go wrong with our fears, when we start letting fear drive the car, when we start letting fear choose our radio station for us, when we let fear decide what we will actually speak about on that car trip, she writes, fear needs to be on our journey of life, but just not behind our steering wheel. It belongs way in the back in the trunk, perhaps. And, you know, I think doubt is just like that, where we do not need to perpetually live in doubt 24-7, but, but we do need to take doubt along for the ride in the very, very back of the trunk. Because as I have experienced, as, as I continue to mature in Christ, is that these occasional doubts is where my straw man theology stops being a faith of my parents and now it begins to become this very mature, it starts blooming and blossoming into this very concrete, nuanced faith of my very own. You see, doubt is where so many of our unwritten rules and well-guarded um, stances and positions, contrary to the Lordship of Christ, come to die. Doubt occasionally has its place in our lives. And yet in the life of John, as it pertains to John the Baptist, though, I mean, it just... It begs the question, why specifically is John doubting Christ's lordship? 
You know, I think it might be because John is such an, an avid outdoorsman. He is such a man of constant action that, that now he finds himself locked into a dungeon, spending now his life locked up in a hole in the ground, where now the days have turned into weeks and the weeks have now become months. And he feels like a rat that is trapped in a cage. Or maybe it's because John has completely misunderstood just who exactly Jesus was. Whereas he's in his prison cell, maybe he, he reminisces and, and he remembers announcing to all these people how as Jesus arrives, that he's going to gather all of the wheat into his barn and he's going to burn up all the chaff with unquenchable fire. And yet as he looks around and, and he considers Jesus, Jesus hasn't done any of that just yet. Maybe, just like everybody else who was living in that time around him, maybe John the Baptist also had this expectation of Jesus being a militant enforcer rather than a compassionate Lord welcoming anybody and everybody into a heavenly kingdom. Or maybe it's just that prison has completely crushed John's spirit. Where just like Gideon was at the very beginning of our Big Question series, as you might remember, Gideon asked a very big question that, that if the Lord really were with us, then why has all of this happened to us? Maybe this is John's own version of that question, that, that if Jesus really were who I said that he was, then what, am, you know, what in the world am I doing locked behind these bars right now? And as we look at our own lives, we can see all of these things. We can feel these things that, that imprison our, our minds and our hearts. And so often in this life, we can relate with, with the lyrics of a public enemy song as it says that, that I'm just wondering where Christ is in this crisis. And I think we're going to be there many times if we're, we're candid with ourselves. It's not going to make immediate sense to us along the way. And yet here's what, what John does that I love here, though, in our, in our text. Even though it appears John is, is wrestling with severe doubt about, is Jesus really the Christ or is he not? John takes his doubt in the wisest way to the right person, where he takes that doubt straight to Jesus through his disciples. See, this is very significant because this is a precursor to Christian prayer, where Jesus is inviting us to take all of our fears, all of our insecurities, our uncertainties, our complaints, our doubts, our unbelief straight to him. Because when John does just exactly this, notice in the text what unfolds in verse 21. Where the response of Jesus more or less is John. The evidence is all around us. Luke 7 and verse 21 says that in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sights. Verse 22, and he answered and he said to them, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. Go and tell John that the blind receive their sight, how the lame walk, 
Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Then Jesus says, and blessed is the one, makarios, it is a beatitude, happy are the ones, to be envied are the ones who are not offended by me, Jesus says. And you know, I just love so much how, notice, Jesus does not get angry or impatient with John. He doesn't let out a huge sigh and said, oh, I knew that guy was going to cave. I mean, a guy goes, goes into to a jail for just, just a short duration of time and he already has no idea who I am. Ugh. See, he doesn't go there. But rather what he says is, I want you to let John know that, that the evidence is all around you. Just look around and, and know that, that, that my kingdom is, is, is well at work in this world and it is underway. In that last verse, what he says is, Blessed is the one who does not or who is not offended by me. It's a word which, which yes, can mean shock, but it also means falling into a pit. And there were a lot of people in the gospel books who, who took offense at the poverty of Jesus. Most people were completely shocked and offended at the kind of Messiah Jesus was and the kind of kingdom that he had in mind as opposed to what they wanted. I think in the world of today, it is exactly as it was then where, where anybody who even mimics Sermon on the Mount Christianity offends people even in the church as they behold just who exactly Jesus is forgiving through, through that Christian. Just who exactly God now is including into his family. You see, this is going to offend us so often because Jesus messes with, with our politics. He messes with, with all of the lifetime of, of, of all this stuff. How we look at people, prejudices, Jesus messes with, with all of that and rightfully so. And yet there in the upper room, Jesus once again returns and, and he looks at Thomas right in the eye and he reaches out and he lays hold of Thomas's hand. He places it in the scars on his hands and in his side. And what, what we hear Thomas proclaiming is, my Lord and my God. What Thomas is saying, in other words, is that the evidence of the risen Christ is all around us. And yet it's a little bit harder for you and I, isn't it? Because we, we are just like John the Baptist in this regard. We, you know, he is locked in a jail. He can't see any of this going on. You and I have never even seen his face. And yet I would say for us, it is even closer for us than it was for, for all of them then in that the evidence is within us of all that Jesus has already accomplished in our souls. And you know, I wish that we could have known exactly how John responded to his disciples as they relay what Jesus said to him. Soon John would be beheaded. John never got out of that jail, out of his prison. And yet, as for you and I this morning, as we close, as we toil in whatever prison we are languishing in this morning, as we undergo whatever doubt, however it looks like in our lives, as doubt manifests itself within us, 
What I want to invite us to when we feel, when we sense all of that, all of that uncertainty and that unbelief is just simply this, keep showing up. We do not have this all under control, all figured out just yet, do we? And guess what? It's okay that we don't have Jesus all figured out just yet. Keep showing up and we will see that the evidence of his lordship is closer than we ever could dream. Lastly, what I want to invite us to when we feel doubt is, is just simply look down below metaphorically. Now, I know that a lot of times in this world, especially now for, for a lot of us, it feels like we are, are, are lying face first in a mud pit. And yet then we remember all the things that God has gotten us through in our lives. We remember all the things that he has rescued us from spiritually. And then we realize that we are always, in a sense, standing on a mountaintop. We can look down and say, man, he brought me all the way down there, all the way up here to the top of this mountain. And the evidence is all around us. And yet when we do encounter new Goliaths, new uncertainties and doubts, what we need to do is to look up high above. Now we can't see him, but we know without a shred of doubt that, that when we look up high above, there is a God who is looming high above whatever is looming over us. The evidence is all around us and it's within us. There had been a man who had a child who had a demonic possession. And the apostles could not do anything about that. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you are willing, have mercy on my son. And I can just see a smirk, a childish smirk formulating on Jesus' face as he kind of cocks his head back and he says, if I can. Do you just say, if I can? Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And I love so much what the Father says in his response to Jesus as he says, Lord, I do believe Jesus. Help my unbelief. We should pray that prayer every single day. Jesus, I do believe you, but help my unbelief. John asks a very, very huge question here. Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another one? It's a question every one of us needs to be very serious about because, after all, no one is immune to doubt. And yet the good news for us this morning is that the evidence is surrounding us and the evidence is all around us.